failed to introduce myself earlier. I'm Kyle Jones, serve as lead pastor here, and I uh, want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting with us today. We're glad you're here. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. That will be nearly in the center of your Bible. <laughs> Very close. Uh, so Psalm 120. Uh, we are at the very end of our, some, well, at least this year's installment of our summer series in the Psalms. So we have uh, been doing that for a few years now. Each summer, uh, we take somewhere around 9 to 12 Psalms, just kind of depending on the summer schedule, and, uh, and then preach through those using multiple preachers. So I want to say thank you to Steve and James and Alan and Jasper, uh, the other elders here at the church. Thank you guys uh, for stepping in this summer. Uh, for filling the pulpit, for teaching, and for uh, giving me uh, some time to focus on some other projects, but also just to have some time away with my family. I, I greatly appreciate it. Well, love you guys. Next week, uh, just kind of a housekeeping thing here as you're finding Psalm 120. Next week, we're going to begin a new series that we're calling Happy the Home, God's Design for Families. So Happy the Home, God's Design for Families. Uh, in which what we're going to do is we're going to start at creation and we're going to work our way forward to see and to understand, hopefully, God's design for men, God's design for women, God's design for uh, marriage as well, God's design for children. Uh, we're going to look at the mission of a home, whether single or married, what, what am I to be doing? Uh, we're also not going to skip over the difficult parts, the parts that show us what went wrong, the parts that show us what need to be, what needs to be corrected, areas where we need to submit ourselves to Christ's lordship. Uh, we're going to look at the difficulties of doing these things, but also the rewards of pushing forward in faith. Amen? So I'm very much looking forward to that series. I'll start next week. Happy the Home uh, will be in Genesis 1. So uh, you can read that and, and come prepared. Now today, uh, like I mentioned, we finished this summer's installment of Psalms with the beginning psalm. Um, the beginning psalm and a collection of song, psalms that are called the Songs of the Sins. Try to say that real fast, all right? Uh, Jewish pilgrims, that was just part of it. Jewish pilgrims sang these on their way to Jerusalem, which was about a 2,700-foot uh, gain and elevation. They would do this on particularly three prescribed annual occasions, which included feasting, all right? These feasts included unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, Harvest, in-gathering, tabernacles, booths, all right? So there was, a, there was a lot of that going on. But as seen in our psalm today, these psalms begin far away from Jerusalem, far away from this holy city and progressively move toward Jerusalem until the pilgrims reach the temple and finish their worship as seen in Psalm 134, which is the 15th Psalm in the Songs of Ascent. All right, we've preached through a few of these this summer, but I wanted to let you know where we're at in Psalm 120. A final note on this before we read it is that the author and the circumstances are unknown. All right, it's, it's clear, however, that the worshiper lives far away from Jerusalem among unbelieving, wicked people. All right, that much is clear. 
And so if you would, would you stand to your feet as we read Psalm 120? I'm going to read it to you. When I'm finished, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you respond, thanks be to God. All right. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful uh, that you have communicated to us through these holy scriptures. We ask now, Lord, that you would uh, enlighten our hearts and minds as we read it, as I strive to teach it. Uh, Lord, may uh, your words and your word here uh, be big in our ears. Lord, may our hearts be inclined to believe to understand, to know the things of God that you seek to communicate to us today. Uh, Lord, may our hearts be fertile ground in which uh, the fruits of the multitudes spring up. Uh, Lord, may our hearts bear much fruits is what I'm asking, what I'm pleading today. May we respond as men and women, boys and girls of faith today. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. So this psalm is what's called an individual lament. Now, the psalms of lament, which are individual or corporate, these psalms comprise the largest categories of the psalms. There's, they make up about one-third of the entire book of psalms. These psalms are prayers that lay out a troubling situation to the Lord, and then they make a request for his help. So they tell you kind of what's going on, as we've seen here. There's lying lips. There's deceitful tongue. There's men who want war. He wants peace. He's praying to the Lord, deliver me. As he prays, the Lord answers. All right, so you see a little bit of that. An individual lament, we might say, is when a worshiper cries out to the Lord in his time of need. And that is where we find the author of Psalm 120. He's living far outside the holy city, Jerusalem. He's living un among unbelieving, wicked people. He says, I sojourn, meaning I, I wonder. I live here, but it's not my home. I sojourn in Meshach. I dwell among the tents of Kedar. So he's living among unbelieving, wicked people. Those two areas are made up of Gentiles who were unbelievers. These people sought to destroy him with lying lips and a deceiver's tongue. He prays, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now, it is possible that this was written during the exile, when God told his people, his dispersed people, to seek the peace or the shalom of the city to which they were sent, as seen in Jeremiah 29, 7. It says there, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in, its wealth, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. If so, if that's true, since Meshach and Kedar are so far apart from one another, they likely represent the uh, entire 
Gentile world. That is that unbelieving pagan world into which God's people were dispersed. Now, one of the things I think that we see as we read this, or that we should see, is that when we are abused or persecuted for our faith, or when we're struggling in our sojourning, a psalm like this ought to console us. It ought, it ought to bring help to us. It ought to strengthen our resolve to live for the Lord. It ought to strengthen us to see the worship of, the dependence on God that this fellow sufferer demonstrates for us, that fellow sufferers would have sang as they went to Jerusalem. Now, while I have not sojourned in Meshach, or I have not dwelled in the tents of Kedar, I've not lived in such unruly, hostile, uh, among such really hostile groups of people as those. Patricia and I have had six kids in our home since Thursday, three of which uh, are visiting, uh, and we still got a day to go. So that's got to be real close to what the psalmist is expressing here, right? Very close. It can be hostile, it can be unruly, uh, but the Lord reigns. Amen? And so the psalmist finds himself among a wicked people. Their, their weapons are lying lips and a deceiver's tongue. I don't know if you've thought about lying lips and a deceiver's tongue as weapons before, but that's the weapon they employ. Now that's the same weapon, consequently, as the one that the great deceiver, whose name is Satan, uses. Except rather than this time, as he approached Eve in the garden himself in the form of a servant, he, he approaches now the worshiper uh, through those whom he has deceived. He's using their lips, their words, right? The same weapons of the great deceiver are still being employed. But listen to Jesus as he addresses the persecution of unbelievers that he was receiving. These were Jewish people. These were people who should have known better, who should have believed but did not. And they told him, we are of our father Abraham. And he says, no, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Ouch. He goes on to say, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Satan. This is the deceiver. And that's what I mean by the great deceiver whose name is Satan. Now here we see that Satan's up to his same tricks. He's doing the same thing he's done for millennia. The same thing he'll do until uh, Christ establishes the new heaven and the new earth. He employs the mouths of those who he has successfully deceived. And it's true that these are great weapons. You don't have to minimize their effectiveness for millennia. People have been downtrodden. People have been abused. People have been persecuted under the sound of slander forever. It's happening today. Many of you might be experiencing slander in your own way. But I want you to know that the weapon of the righteous is the true worship of God. The weapon that the righteous man holds, the righteous woman holds in his or her possession is that he or she can come into the house of the Lord and worship God. Now you might say, well, how's that a weapon? 
And I would ask you, how is it not? How is it not a weapon? In his or her persecution, the worshiper turns to the Lord. And this is what the worshiper here says. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. In his distress, he says, I called to the Lord and the Lord answered me. How is this not the greatest weapon? Worship acts as a bomb. It is a bomb for the soul of the suffering sojourner, but it's, a, uh, it's simultaneously a jab in the eye of the wicked person. And that's okay. You understand that it's okay to worship God and let that be a balm for your soul, but to simultaneously act as a jab in the eye of a wicked person. It's okay. You're not slandering them. You're not fighting the same war they're fighting. You're worshiping God, and they don't like your worship. It stinks. They hate it. It's like Paul writes in Corinthians to us, and or to the Corinthian church, but for us as well. And he says that uh, the these things of the Lord, the things of God, are not understood by the flesh. Essentially, elsewhere he writes that the gospel is an aroma of life to the living. It's a good smell, but it's an aroma of death to the dying. There's a stench that comes with your worship that causes unbelievers to sneer. But that's okay. It's not that you're intentionally wanting to cause them to sneer. It's not that you're intentionally trying to mock or belittle. You're worshiping God, and they don't like it. And so we'll talk more about that. But this is what we know about the man here is he says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So he's saying I'm speaking the words of peace. He is a God worshiper, and he's seeking to honor God with his lips, and yet they are dishonoring God with their lips by being liars and deceivers. And he's saying, when I speak, I am for peace, but they are for war. They don't like it. They don't want godly peace because they don't want God. Now, God can change all of that. And he'll change it by your worship. And so I just want you to know right out of the gate that, that, and you can write it down if you want to, worship balms the soul of the suffering sojourner and jabs the eye of the wicked. And that this is okay. It's okay. But let's examine the psalm a bit more closely. The first thing I want you to see here is that the righteous cry aloud and the Lord does hear them. It's one of the most important things to walk away with from Psalm 120 is this truth, that the righteous cry aloud. The righteous man cries out, and the Lord does hear him. Take confidence in this. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Praise God. Men, women, children, boys, girls in here, when you cry to the Lord in faith, he hears you. He hears you. Most lament psalms simultaneously express their distress and their confidence in God. So there's a distress about things that are going on around them, and then there's a real confidence in God in the middle of the distress. The psalmist here is doing the same thing. He's saying, in my distress, there's a real distress. People are lying about me. They're being deceivers. 
There's a genuine confidence. I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Now, he may be remembering past distresses as he confesses this right out of the gate in Psalm 120, verse 1. He might be looking back on the past times that he's cried aloud to the, aloud to the Lord, and the Lord has responded. The Lord has heard him. Praise God. That's one confidence you can have, right? As you, as you think about things going on in your life, is that I can cry aloud now, and the Lord hears me. And so here it might be that he's being He's reminding himself of past distresses. He's reminding himself of God's answers, and he's using that as a way to embolden himself to hit his knees in prayer now in this distress. And praise God for it. And it could also be that verse 1 is written in hindsight. Verses 2 through 7 describe the issue. They describe the crying out. They describe the problem. And in verse 1, he's just saying the Lord answered another prayer. Either, either way, in either case, we can take heart as we see that God hears the cries of his people. Again, don't miss verse 1. In my distress, I, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. What confidence then? This is why I say this is the greatest weapon. What confidence then does the believer possess when he knows that he is not forgotten, nor is he forsaken? His distress doesn't go unnoticed. His distress doesn't go unanswered. By God, as he cries aloud, the Lord hears him. You see, the Lord draws near to the cries for relief. I'm reminded of earlier in the Old Testament as we read about the cries of the Israelites going up and then the Lord hearing their cries, confessing, I heard their cries and I'm sending help. Over and again, we see this. Over and again in the Psalms, we see the same confession, that when I cry to the Lord, he answers me. The Lord moves upon him here in the Psalm. He moves upon his circumstances. As the worshiper goes to God, God soothes him with a balm for his souls. Now, what is the balm? Well, the balm is the caring, loving presence of God. The balm is the just and righteous actions of the Creator on behalf of his people he answered me i cried aloud to the lord and the lord answered me so whether your distress is from outside lying lips and a deceiver's tongue persecuting you because of your love for christ and your faithfulness to the lord whether it's the sin of another right or whether it's born within you and so you have caused yourself distress by carrying out the desires of your own flesh. Either way, you can be confident that the Lord will hear your cries when you go to him. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And whether in relief, you're calling desperate for relief, you're calling out to the Lord, hear me, he hears you. Or whether in repentance, you're crying out to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. For my sinfulness. What a wretch I am. Save me. Strengthen me. Purify me. As David does in Psalm 51, right? You can be confident that the Lord takes not his Holy Spirit from you. That the Lord hears you. That the Lord comes to you. The balm of the Lord comes quickly to those who cry aloud to him. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, 
We see then, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? That Christ is the Son of God. And he's the Lord of lords. Let us hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is able, or sorry, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is what I'm saying. Like you have confidence to know that as you go to the Lord, as you go to that throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace in your time of need, you're crying aloud, Lord, have mercy. Lord, save me. Lord, bring me grace, right? Whatever the prayer is, according to the name of the Lord, you can have confidence that he hears you. He, he hears you. Next, we see the content of the psalmist's petition. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Again, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Our goal in the psalm series each summer is the same. We, we just call it psalms, aligning ourselves with God's heart. And that's what we're after. We, we do this because the psalms instruct us for this very thing across 150 different psalms with varying circumstances and emotions. But what you see is the same thing. Men of God coming to the Lord, seeking to instruct a congregation on how to align themselves, their heart, with God. In other words, how to submit themselves to the Lord. And in verse 2, we have tremendous wisdom shown to us. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Deliver me, O Lord. You see, there's no better place to go when facing the slander of another. There, there's little help in going to our friends in the matter. Because the more we stir the pot, the more it bubbles over and it spreads. There's little help in actually going to friends about this. There's even less help in going to social media about it, right? Like there's zero help. It only bubbles and festers. But a still worse help is to appeal to the honor of our persecutors. The, the one who slanders another possesses no honor. And any demands made for their honor will only further incite them to riot, essentially. It's like trying to extinguish a fire with gasoline. And I, I like the way Charles Spurgeon states this. He says, silence to man and prayer to God are the best cures for the evil of slander. Now, we could have stopped it, are the best cures, period. <laughs> silence to man and prayer to God are the best cures. He goes on to say, when cries to man would be our weakness, cries to God will be our strength. To whom should children cry but to their father? Does not some good come even out of that vile thing, that falsehood, when it drives us to our knees and to our God? Amen. Amen. Nothing is meaningless. There's a purpose for everything. The purpose always leads us back to grace. And so even in slander, if it drives us to our knees, 
to pray and to seek the Lord's face, to seek the Lord's instruction, to seek his wisdom, then it is a product of grace in our lives. It's a good thing. For it is there in prayer that we find out that God hears us. It's there in prayer that we find out that God attends to us. We find out that God is not deaf, that he listens to his people as they desperately seek him. Spurgeon said, he makes each of his children confess, the Lord answered me. <laughs> Amen. So when you're slandered by the lies of deceivers, it's a joy to see that the Lord knows you. And that he cannot be made to doubt your uprightness, because your uprightness is according to the uprightness of Christ, not your own uprightness. Right? This, this is what faith is. Faith is believing that Christ died to save you from your sins, believing that Christ rose again on the third day, believing that Christ now reigns in heaven. But then in all of that, in that, um, in that regeneration of the Spirit, in that believing or exercising faith in Christ, God has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ as if it were your very own, and he's imputed your righteousness, or sorry, your unrighteousness to Christ as if it were his own, and it wasn't. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, essentially so that we who knew no righteousness might become the righteousness of God. So when you're slandered by the lies of deceivers, it's a joy to see that the Lord knows you. He will not hear the lie against you, but he will hear the prayer against the lie. The Lord upholds the righteous as they seek him wholeheartedly. So, though you are now in exile, you're now dwelling among the wicked. There is a city on a hill that awaits you. This is true. You receive glimpses of its glory in this life. How? Well, they're found in the redemption of your soul, for one. As Christ saves you, this is your first glimpse of the glory of God. First true understanding of the glory of God is that he saves sinners. So glory is found in the redemption of your souls by faith in Christ. Glory is also found in the public worship and gathering of the saints. It's found in the private prayers and scripture readings of each day. It's found in the joy of marriage and children. It's found in the peace of a quiet life filled with hard work which God gives to us. It's found in the beauty of the rising and the setting of the sun and so many more things. Like if you'll just take a deep breath each day, look around you, you'll find plenty to give God glory for. Plenty. There's glimpses of glory all around, yet all of those are but glimpses. They're glimpses of what awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth when Christ returns. And so we patiently wait the revealing of the sons of God. We patiently await the revealing of the new Jerusalem, the holy city that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. Until that day, we count the reproaches of following Christ as greater than the acceptance or the praise of this world. Our eyes are fixed on Christ. The worshiper's life code, if you will, is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our code. And a life lived like that, a life lived by that understanding is the same kind of life that's going to go to the Lord in times of distress. It's the same one that's going to walk away saying, the Lord answered me. You can be confident that the Lord hears you. So he says there, I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord. Where do you go with your distress? To whom do you go with your distress? It's going to be a great question to help you evaluate where your faith rests. Let's keep moving. Verse 3 and 4 here. Gets into now the arrows and the fire of God's sure justice. The arrows and the fire of God's sure justice. This is the indictment here. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. So the psalmist here is searching for the what should be done about the deceitful tongue. To, to what shall we go? To whom shall we go? What needs to be done about this? Now, let me tell you, you cannot meet slander with more slander. You can't meet slander with more slander. The slanderer fights, one, it would be ungodly for you to do so, okay? It would be unrighteous to do that. But the slanderer fights with weapons no godly man can touch. He's like a skunk. He gives off an odor of falsehood that no true man can endure. But what about God? What will he do with lying lips and a deceitful tongue? Well, God has uttered his most terrible threats against him, and this should suffice. This should be enough to make us say, I'm keeping quiet. I'm trusting the Lord. He will bring them justice in due time. This is what Proverbs 19.9 says. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will perish. So the verdict is announced. Liars, deceivers stand condemned already. Proverbs 12.22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord but those who act faithfully are his delight. So verse 4 reveals their judgment is going to be swift, it's going to be sharp, it's going to be hot, and it is sure. God's justice will be served. God will see to it that their punishment will be like the warrior's arrows, driven home with all the force with which a mighty man shoots it from his bow. The psalmist here says that it'll be white hot like the glowing coals of a broom tree. Their end is an awful doom unless they repent of their sins and turn in faith to Christ Jesus who alone can save their souls. If they don't do that, then their portion will be in the lake of fire. This is what Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, you understand it is far better to be the victim of slander than to be the author of it. 
their slander may fly at you like arrows, but those arrows are going to miss the mark. Those arrows cannot touch God's faithful people. God's justice, however, will not miss the mark. It will land on everyone whom he chooses to execute his justice on. And so you mustn't be a slanderer. You must avoid that evil at all costs. At times it is wise to search through the slog of slander, the the, the, the goo of it, the mess of it, right? Slander comes flying at you from different places. There might be a rare jewel in there which breeds repentance within us. There might be a reason to believe some of the things that are being hurled at you. You can't just dismiss all of it for no reason at all. Some of what's said may be true. Don't dismiss the truths because of the lies. Own the truths, repent of your sins, pursue Christ with a pure heart. So when we talk about slander here, we're not talking about just any word uttered against you that you think is false. It must actually be false. It must actually be a sinful thing that's being said. It must be wrong. Right? It's not just anytime somebody says something about me that I don't like. Well, you know, he's not very nice or he doesn't lead very well or whatever, right? Like, some of those things may be true, and I need to own those if they are. So it's wise to search through. We don't dismiss those things. We want to own them, repent, and pursue Christ. But remember that the embers and the arrows of God's justice are sure. And if you are in Christ Jesus by faith, then he has taken God's justice on himself for you. And so you need to praise the Lord, praise the Lord for such grace and freedom. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. Finally, we see here instructions on how to live for peace among the warmonger. How to live for peace among the ones who want war. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist is, is expressing frustration. Right? I mean, it's a frustrating thing to know the truths of God to live as one who is convinced of the truths of God, to submit your life to Christ as Lord of your life, and to be walking as much as you're able in obedience to God, and to share those things, to proclaim the gospel to others, to invite others to believe as freely as you were invited to believe, only to have them hiss and to cuss and to fight and to belittle, and to degrade, and to mock, to bemoan all of those precious things which you're trying to share. This is what Jesus means when he says, you cannot cast your pearls before swine. It's a difficult thing to live in a world that so clearly hates God. I don't mean the whole 
world. Obviously, there are believers. Praise God, we're sitting among many today. But to live in a world that is brazen in its sinfulness demands that you agree with the sinfulness, that you approve of the sinfulness, and that any crossword about the sinfulness, mind you, crossword is just literally proclaiming the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of, sin, of said sinfulness, that any of that is being intolerant. It's a bigot. It's being unloving. Um, yeah. You see, when those people ridicule you, mock you, because of your worship for God. You'll cry out like the psalmist does, I am for peace, but they are for war. <laughs> when I speak, they are for war. It becomes clear. And that's what the psalmist is expressing here. He's, he, again, this is in the Song of Ascent. It's meant to be sung as you are far away from the holy city, heading there. Well, you and I live today as those who are far away from the holy city, headed there. Amen? Well, when I say the holy city, I'm talking about the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem to come. You are a sojourner. You're an exile. You're a stranger, an alien on the earth. But you sing this. This is your psalm, man. This is the one you sing as you're marching forward, as you're pressing forward in faith. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's unbelievable. I mean, it ends in an exclamation point. I, I know that he's just making the statement, like, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You know, I don't know if that's the inflection, but that feels like that's probably the inflection. Because I get the frustration. I think you get the frustration. All right? We want people to know the reconciliation of Christ Jesus with God the Father, to live at peace in their heart and their mind, with their souls at ease in Christ. We want that for people. But just like you and I didn't want it until the Holy Spirit moved upon us, they don't want it either. And so that's why it's important for you to understand that your worship of God is going to be a balm for your soul, but it's going to be a jab in the eye to those unbelievers. And that that's okay, because you're not intentionally jabbing the eye. I'm not saying you go out intentionally. I'm not saying there's not a time for it. Elijah certainly thought there was a time to mock those who worship other gods. But it doesn't mean you're intentionally obtuse. It means you love the Lord. You delight in him. You raise your children to do the same. You love your wife or your husband. You, you grow up in the things of the Lord, right? You mature in Christ, and that causes you to become more faithful to him and more loving to others. This is the path of a disciple. It's a long obedience in the same direction. But that's going to offend others. And I'm telling you, you need to be okay with that. You just be okay with it. You don't live for the praise of man, you live for the praise of the Lord. 
And so, brothers and sisters, I urge you to live as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is at peace with God, but you must take note that the warmongers aren't going to like it. Though you are for peace, that is, you are for the true peace with God by faith in Christ who died for your sins, the peace we find through reconciliation as we become new creations in Christ Jesus because of his death and resurrection, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, not the fluffy, impossible world peace of beauty pageants. It's not going to happen. Not that one. This is a peace that surpasses all the understanding that our flesh can muster. This peace comes to us by the Spirit of God who gives us new hearts and transforms us. And so whether you live in Honduras or Japan, whether you live in Australia or Canada, whether you live in Waldo, McNeil, or Stamps, whether you live in Camden, El Dorado, or Magnolia, or anywhere in between, you are a sojourner. You sojourn in Meshach. You dwell among the tents of Kedar. That is, the unbelieving world is all around you. Again, you are a sojourner. You your king is Christ. Your home is with him. And so this place is temporary. Even if this place goes on for another 6,000 years, it's temporary. Now, what we read in Hebrews 11 about these men and women of the faith is, is this. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Let me just stop for a second. That very first line. These all died in faith. May that be our testimony. Amen. May we go to the graves in faith. He goes on to write here, for people who speak thus, that they're strangers and exiles on the earth, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Right? You start thinking about that previous life. You start thinking about the places you came from. It says they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen. And so you live by faith in Christ. Those who are deceived live by faith in anything else but Christ. It can be themselves. It can be a doorknob. It can be the moon, the stars. I mean, there are, there are gods of every shape and variety that people worship. They are children of wrath, bottom line, as Ephesians 2 pronounces upon them, of whom you once were, as Ephesians 2 also pronounces upon us. And so when you talk about peace with God by faith in Christ, you are likely going to get ridiculed and slandered. But know this, as you promote such a Savior as Christ, He draws His enemies to Himself, and He makes them His friends. He saves them. He transforms them. He gives them a new name, so to speak. He writes His law upon their hearts. And they submit themselves to him. And so I urge you to walk by faith now so that you die in faith later. You won't receive all of the promised things that we read about in the scriptures in this life. You're going to greet some of them from afar. But one day, you'll see them all. They await you in the next life. You are a stranger and an exile now, but your homecoming isn't far away, brothers and sisters. And so you must keep the faith. 
you must keep the faith. Worship God and always remember that that worship is a balm for your soul and it's a jab in the eye of the wicked. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you would help us to believe it with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, everything about us, Lord. Help us to love you. Lord, would you lead us from that into love for our neighbor? Lord, may we be the kind of men and women who worship you above everything else. And we understand, Lord, that that worship is going to offend some, but that worship is the very thing that we need. It's the very thing that they need. And they may come to see it. They may come to believe it as we proclaim the truths of your word, Father. So, Lord, strengthen us for this life that you've granted to us. Father, if there's anyone in here who doesn't believe in you, who has not trusted that Christ is your son, that you sent him to die for their sins, that he rose again by the power of your spirit on the third day, that he defeated death and hell and the grave. If there are people here who don't believe that, Lord. Would you draw them to repentance now? Lord, would you grant them a new heart, a new mind by your spirit? Would you save them from their sins? Help them to believe in Christ as Lord. Help them to follow him now. Lord, we love you greatly. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Before you guys.